You're with the Regeneration, ad-free, freely available, independent and listener-supported. Thanks so much to new patron of the podcast, John McPherson. If you too value what you hear, please consider joining John by becoming a patron too. For as little as $3 a month, or whatever amount you can and want to contribute, that'd really help. And you'll get exclusive access to some behind-the-scenes footage, a place to engage with a wonderful community of listeners, occasional gift offers, invitations, and more. Just head to the website via the show notes, regeneration.com, and click on support. Thanks a lot. It was a big part of the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing because, you know, we went and visited a property north of Alice Springs back in 2004 and it just blew my mind. It's just like, well, you don't have to do it the way that we have been doing it. It's just to have that sort of vision that there is a different way is, is so important. And the more the more of those visions that we can have and the closer they are to people, the more likely they are to uh, to take them up. So. So yeah, I think that that's what this program can deliver. G'day, my name's Anthony James, this is The Regeneration, and that was David Pollock, one of Australia's most prominent regenerative pastoralists. He and wife Frances have featured a few times on the award-winning ABC TV series Australian Story. But I'm more fond of telling people these days they featured a few times on The Regeneration podcast. David's also known for his brilliant book, The Woolene Way, Renewing an Australian Resource. That was aptly described as the astonishing story of reviving the oldest land on earth. When that book was published a few years ago, the Western Australian State Minister for Agriculture and Food, Regional Development and now Hydrogen, paid David and Francis a visit to talk about it. A few years on, Just last week, the Minister returned with a big announcement. And when David and I were talking about that, we ended up talking about some other big changes in himself. Here's David. I'm here. Hey. You're there. How are you? I'm good. How are you going? I'm good too. Excellent. Let's start with a little a snapshot or a, or even a sense of a highlight for you about how life's been at Woolene over the last... Well, it's been two years since you've been on the podcast, but probably six months since we spoke. Yeah, well, uh, things have been... I feel like things sort of trundled on pretty similarly to uh, how I was last time. Though we have had a few... We've had lots of wins, really, southern rangelands-wise, with the uh, Minister for Agriculture and another department that I can't remember all the names of, uh, Alana McTiernan, yeah, well, making a few announcements that make carbon trading a lot easier and possible. So uh, that's a really big win. And just recently we had her out here to announce the Southern Rangelands Revitalisation Project, which is to for initially phase one is to get a bunch of pastoralists together who are really keen to change things up in the rangelands and upskill them so that they've got a broad sort of uh, understanding of uh, different things. But it's focused on trying to regenerate their properties. And phase two of that program, which hasn't yet been announced, uh, but is to is to essentially fund doing some uh, innovative things on their properties so that they can try and find 
you know, sustainable paths out of, uh, you know, the morass that the Southern Rangelands has been in for quite some time. So that's pretty exciting and something that we've been pushing for for a while. Yeah. Yeah, it was good, good tourist season last, last year, which is really good. Uh, fantastic cattle prices, which is good. Yeah, so things are talking along really well. Yeah, yeah. And how's the land looking to you? Yeah, it's good. We, we, we had a we had what is essentially an average season last year, which um, which we thought was fantastic. It seems like average seasons are the good seasons these these days. Mm. So that was really good. We we didn't get we got the average amount of rain, but it fell at a really good time, which makes a big difference. So you know, in conjunction with all the other bits of rain. So that was really good. And, you know, the, the perennial plants, which is what we're, you know, focusing on trying to get back in the landscape, did really well. I mean, we had lots of wildflowers and all those sorts of things, which is not really what we're aiming for. They just yes. tell you that you've had lots of rain, which is good. But in the background, all the perennials, are uh, they're loving it too. So, yeah, landscape-wise, things, things are good. Mm. Seeing lots of little things pop up. Where they weren't before, so really, there's a lot of hope that those those sort of things can, you know, spread their wings and spread over the whole property. So that keeps going. Mm. You, you keep getting surprised by little pop-ups like oh, that. Definitely, definitely. I mean, some places there there isn't any of the good plants, so who knows how long it will take for them to get there. We've got a few little nurseries which are going really well. You know, producing a lot of seed um, for, for 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 species that essentially have, have completely disappeared. Um, so that's really exciting um, yeah. and got plans for doing a lot more. So uh, and we bought bought the materials for them. So it just, it just remains for me to get my act into gear to actually build them. But uh, that's always exciting. So I don't think that'll be hard to get motivated for. And you were going to do, I don't think it happened, am I right? You were going to do some workshops I think it was one was even going to be with Stuart Andrews a while back. Yeah. And COVID derailed that, did it? Yeah, last year yeah, we were going to do that. Um, and unfortunately, yeah, it just became too hard for uh, everybody, especially Stuart and Peter, to get in and, and make it happen. So, in fact, this new funding by uh, Alana McTiernan is, is largely for, you know, upskilling and going to workshops like that. So we're hoping that we might be able to get him back and, and try and, get that included yeah it sounds really interesting so that's a beautiful segue to how it went last wednesday it was wasn't it so about a week ago when, when the minister was out at your place again and three years since she was out at your place when the book came out and this relates to the book some of the stuff that you were wishing for in the book and you were talking about it in terms of like a stewardship program at the time that you would love to have seen roll out. And you mm. feel like this is coming along those lines. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, it, it is very similar to what sort of I put in the book that I thought would be a good solution to, or, or at least part, part solution to the, the pastoral side of things. So, yeah, I think that we need, we sort of need some real shining lights about how you can do things differently because it's difficult for people to set off on a on a journey which may prove to be quite difficult not really knowing what's going to be at the end like if you've never seen country that's in really good in good health and doing really well well it's hard to visualize how and why you would you'd set off to try and achieve that so i think that having as many different options about but 
you know, maybe not completed, but, you know, well-advanced uh, systems of management that people can go and have a look at and decide, you know, maybe which one is for them, which bits they can take out. It's just, it's just really important. And that's why that was a big part of the reason that I'm doing what I'm doing because, you know, we went and visited a property north of Alice Springs back in 2004 and it just blew my mind. It's just like, well, you don't have to do it the way that we have been doing it. This plainly is, is a different way of doing it. And, well, I didn't follow exactly what they did, but just to have that sort of vision that there is a different way is, is so important. And the more the more of those visions that we can have and the closer they are to people, the more likely they are to uh, to take them up. So, so, yeah, I think that that's what this program can deliver. Uh, you know, it's, it's the early stages and it does need funding for the latter stages, but... I think it's it's exactly what the Southern Rangelands needs. Mm. It starts with about half a million dollars of funding and it's been called a pilot at this point. There are 16 initial participants. You're one of them mm. So around the Southern Rangelands, which is, for those who don't know, it's quite an extensive patch of land. It's a good chunk. Give us an idea of the, the landscape we're talking about, the other people in it, what the feeling is, I guess, amongst the people in it. Well, I mean, so it sort of runs from Exmouth up in the northwest down to the Nullarbor. So it's not the southwest of Western Australia. That's, you know, once the farming country starts, it's not Southern Rangers anymore, but it's that that big sway. You've got the corner, which is farming, and the next lot out is the Southern Rangers. Then you have the Pilbara, and then you have the Kimberley, then you have the desert. So there's, there's, there's really only the, the five of them. Uh, and West Australia is a pretty big place. So, and, and Southern Range is a particularly big chunk of it. So, how big are we talking, David? I don't know. I'd have to read my book to figure it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the sixteen stations—they're all about what a half a million acres. Would that be? Can we sort of ballpark it? Be like about eight million acres potentially? Something. You probably could. Some of them are significantly larger, those, and some of those are a bit smaller. Yeah, but a yeah, lot anyway. You, you could be. And I guess the feeling, I mean, cattle prices have been really high. So the, so the feeling in the, in the pastoral industry is, is, is pretty good at the moment. And on top of that, you've got a lot of excitement about carbon trading and, um, you know, carbon traders, you know, you hear rumours of them or, or you know, um, offering quite large sums of money, you know, twice what they would have traditionally sort of been worth for, for carbon farming, whether they're true or not, I don't know. But, um you know, there's uh, so so I would say the mood was pretty optimistic at the moment, and most of it's had good rain. There's a bit around Meek there, and out sort of it didn't do so well, uh, but most of it's had reasonable rain. So yeah, I'd say that the uh, you know the mood is pretty good at the moment, but you know as soon as it stops raining, the, <laughs> the mood might not be so good. But I mean, I guess carbon trading carbon trading is still going to be there, and that's only going to uh, you know increase in its reach. But I mean, like so, but that's a relatively new development. You know, the, the mood in the Southern Rangelands over the past thirty years has, has been pretty dreary. Yeah. You know, ever since the collapse of the wool price in you know nineteen ninety, and I quite a bit before that too. So, you know, it's been in a downward spiral for a fair while. It's a bit of a tick up at the moment, but you know, yeah, that's right. Not insignificant. It's interesting to me that the only media I saw on this was. The National Tribune and just yesterday, the Farm Weekly. So two regional outlets and nothing in city areas. And I'm like, wow, for something that's so significant and such a long time coming and so 
relevant to city. Like everything depends on it in in many respects. It's, it's not an exaggeration to say that that's a bit disappointing. You were going to have the ABC out there doing something, or did they? And it just didn't get to air. Oh no, they came. I didn't. Uh, they did a live uh, thing in, in the morning. Okay, but they did. They did report on it. But I think that that's. I mean, it's essentially funding for upskilling pastoralists and, and probably trying to change their mindset a little bit, which is incredibly important, but not terribly sexy to the public. No, that's the <laughs> you know, thing. The public, yeah. and, and I guess I guess it's why the politicians love to stand next to you know the new fancy thing that you know the money is bought or the or you know and and i would argue those things are nowhere near as important as the mindset of the people that manage the landscape so you know if the media hasn't reported on it then i suspect or not reported much i suspect it's because the, the media knows it's probably not really what the average punter wants to know unless they're already invested in it you know what i mean mm. I, I don't know like i think that's part of the problem that that, no, that yeah. we don't put that that emphasis on, you know, how people's minds work. You know, the people that are actually on ground. Yes. Um, doing the managing. That's 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 the really important thing, and and that's that's the you know that culture. If you aggregate it all together, that becomes the culture of whatever industry it is. That's something that's always changing, and you know the fact that that's changing towards a more sustainable path is something that's going to you know, have a big impact on Australia for as long as Australia is Australia, you know, is an incredibly important shift, uh, much more important than anything you could actually get in a photo. <laughs> yes. But nonetheless, that, that's, uh, that's, that's generally, it's like, oh, yeah, we're trading for pastoralists. Well, you know, it's not nothing we can really take a good photo of. So... Well, we put it in the news. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, there is a good photo that Elena put on her, the minister put on her uh, social media posts. So we'll put that on the title slide for this episode, actually. But yeah, point taken, mate. It, it's interesting, though, that against that, I guess this might be an argument for a misjudgment in the media landscape on that front. Because, and sure, this might be what you said is entirely historically true, but you look at the increasing fervour and angst around climate, certainly, um, and so carbon related to that, the floods over east uh, right now, obviously mm-hmm. the fires we had over here, you know, all all unprecedented, the, the service has never seen anything quite so vivid anywhere before. That, that sort of trajectory, when this offers a way to address them in some fashion at the, at the root... I wonder if it's a bit sexier than what people are thinking, actually. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's incredibly sexy. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, I guess that that also relates to the mindset of the people that are receiving the information. Yeah. But it also depends on exactly how, you know, this half a million dollars is spent and and what upskilling actually results from it yes. and what mindset change if, if you you know put it on the news that 16 pastors have you know they've i don't get myself in trouble here but you know they've completely uh, renounced the the ways of the past and they're absolutely on track to 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 embrace you know a much brighter future for everybody and and that is guaranteed 
Well, that probably would get quite a lot of, but yeah, I, I guess the, I guess people probably put going out on a limb here. I reckon people probably put more faith in a, a piece of infrastructure, mm. something that they can tangibly see, yep. than in the ability and capacity and passion of a bunch of people that they don't know. Mm. I think you've absolutely got a point. I, I wonder if it's changing because it's interesting too, right, that the people behind the machine, they don't know either, but but we have been in a culture that has deferred to those people who make nice machines, but mm. the equally unknown. If the person driving the machine is no good, well, at least you've still got the machine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> this is all part of why you wrote your book, of course, and, and that's – where we last spoke previously was at the end of last year, where we, where you'd floated the idea of actually turning your book into a, an audio book as well, because that hadn't been done, and it's a bit of a thing today, obviously, mm. and uh, and and we sort of left off last year that that would be a, something we'd follow up on this year, but you started to feel like partly that it might not be necessary, because if this sort of development has started to roll then maybe it's mission accomplished to a degree. But I did have, when I was divulging this to a listener and supporter of the podcast prior to speaking with you today, he said, no, no, I still do the audiobook. It's There's the rest of the country. And I guess if we are talking mindset, it is a bigger, even if the shift is in tow, perhaps the broader agenda for change, that culture, that mindset that you're talking about, is probably a bigger thing again than than one particular initiative in one region, in one field even, if you like. Sure, yeah, I agree. What What is the question? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe this is the argument to uh, keep thinking about the audio, but we'll, we'll go on with that. I'm curious for you, and th- this is by way of sort of segue into a bit more idea for people about what this might entail, but, but for you... What do you figure your participation in this pilot will be about? What you'll do? So the beginning phase one of the pilot is is the upskilling phase, and I think that that's I think it's a good move on Alana's behalf to really figure out which people are really passionate about you know finding innovative ways for the southern rangelands that are mainly focused on. Uh, the natural resource, improving the natural resource. You know, so what I'm keen on is just to talk to the other pastorists and mm. and and to to find out what ideas they have and how they think. You know, their their business, their 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 land can move forward. And I'm really excited about passing on the knowledge that we have in that regard. And and aside from that, there's a bunch of courses and things uh, that. Uh, we've been meaning to do and sometimes even booked in for but then had to pull out of because we we just can't find the time to get away, you know, actually knuckling down and doing some of those courses and things, yeah. But but really, the, you know, the exciting bit is, is the next phase, which is the where you actually get to do do your, your innovation, whatever it is, do your uh, set up your system and, and, and hopefully have a bit of support and funding to do that. Yeah. It was interesting for me to see that, Part of that media coverage that I did see featured the other woman who's in the photo with you and the minister at your place last week, Debbie Dowden, out near Mount Magnet they are with their half a million acres. 
Their story is fascinating too in the sense that she's looking to really work off natural capital accounting quite significantly. And in their case, with kids who aren't interested in coming back to the station, she's thinking succession in terms of whoever the lease is sold to. I thought that's quite... Well, A, it says there's going to be more opportunity for other people out of this, at least in that instance. And B, what a beautiful way to be thinking about succession to regenerate a place and to develop a methodology that sets it up for the next generations that you're not actually nominally directly invested in. But of course, this is part of the mindset we'd love to see more of, that we're invested in each other in these ways. So Debbie's story seems quite a Mm. beautiful one in itself. And I guess just emphasises your point about connecting like that. Yeah, and, and, you know, Debbie and, and, and her husband's family have been on Chella since or that property since it since its inception. So, you know, they're very invested in its future and what happens to it. And it, and it also it reminds me of, uh, you know, people say to us, well, you know, you don't, you don't have kids, you know, what's going to happen mm. when, you know, you have to sell? You know, it's not really about Wolleen even. It's, it's, about, it's about the whole industry. It's about the mindset of the industry, you know, if, if all we fix is willing, then we'll have failed. You know, we, we have to have an, in, an impact on the broader industry or, you know, at least try to if we're really going to achieve, you know, the goals that we've set out to achieve. It's about finding a way forward for, for everyone, not just pastoralists, all Australians, everyone really, yep. the whole world. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know, I guess you, you probably would, but out of the 16 stations, I mean, I don't remotely know them well enough, are any First Nations amongst them? I don't know, but I don't know all the stations even. There you go. Uh, yeah, that's not true. I've read them through a list, but the Southern Range is a big place. Some of yeah. those properties, I, just, I don't know any, anything about them. I'm not aware of any, but I'd have to look at the list again. It'd be interesting mm. to see if out of this... That's one of the lines of development, the collaboration, at least, if not uh, tenure. It's, a, and... it's actually it's a good point. It reminds me that I should probably put it forward as something that needs to be, you know, we need to be upskilled in. Yeah, we can yeah. find, you know, suitable places to to go and have a look what some of the TOs doing. Yeah. And David, I'm curious, have there been shifts in the governance of the sector? that you wrote about pretty powerfully in your book, obviously. We've talked about it. Have there been shifts there too in this period of time or is this just sort of going around it? Or I think, you know, it's mainly driven by Alana McTiernan. Yeah. Uh, outside of Alana, the same bureaucrat, well, the same bureaucrats are there, but the same, um, you know, ground people are there. And some of them are good and some of them, are, you know, less helpful, I would argue, but they're all the same. They haven't really changed over. So, you know, really this has been driven from the top down. And I, I know Alana's fought pretty hard for especially the stuff around carbon training and things. You know, she's uh, definitely mm. had a good crack at it. Yeah. And Debbie's initiated, I believe, the Southern Rangelands Pastoral Alliance I guess that's another effort to try and have that top down meet the bottom up in the absence of structures of governance that have been able to 
go about it. Yeah, that's been that's been really important. And Debbie has been a real mover and shaker in that. We we just didn't have good representation here. Yeah. Um, we had the Pastorists and Graziers Association, who I would argue have not represented the pastorists in the Southern Rangelands very well at all, which is part of the reason they don't have many members anymore. Um, but they're, you know, they're essentially, they were the, um, also they still are the only lobby, you know, sort of group that supposedly represents the Southern Rangelands. So we just don't have, we don't have the representation that we need. So the new, you know, Southern Rangelands group is, is fantastic. Yeah, people coming together for themselves. I, I see this everywhere, you know, because as you described that governance situation, the non-representative increasingly actually literally vacant of membership, um, these bodies, I think of our major political parties and and our state of federal politics. And so we had our an independent candidate nominated in our seat here in Curtin, who was on the podcast last week. And and yeah, she's basically everywhere she goes, it's people saying, we don't feel represented. Are you going to do it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Similar dynamics. And I think that, the, you know, politics is always the last to move, you know, the, the political mm. system. And, and, you know, we need we need a lot of change. And the, the politics just, you know, it's behind. It always is. Yeah. So it, it makes sense that we're not being represented because most people recognise that there need to be really significant changes and, the, you know, the political system just hasn't caught up. Yeah, well said. With the carbon stuff, that was part of what we spoke about a couple of years ago on the podcast because it had just been announced then by Alana in WA. You were sort of just sitting and watching at that stage. Has that changed? Are you getting more involved in that space? Not really, but largely because we're not actually eligible for uh, for carbon trading unless it's on the voluntary carbon market because we've been doing what we've been doing for 15 years. Well, for 14 years, maybe it's 15 now. Um, so unless it's, it's, it's additional to what, what you were doing, then, you know, it's not actually, um, it's not eligible for carbon trading. So it's a bit like, you know, if, if you're an AWC or Bush Heritage of this world and you locked up your property, you know, 20 years ago, you can't now trade carbon to that because it's not new carbon. And we're sort of probably considered the same. Mm. We could get rid of all of our cows. You know, we, we, we'd still trade cows. So, you know, we could stop doing that, but we don't want to do that. We, you know, we, 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 we run a very few cows to try and keep relevant with the pastoral industry that we want to have an impact on. You know, we not, don't want to get rid of them all so that we no longer have that sort of impact on the pastoral industry for the sake of trading carbon. So... Mm. So we're probably not eligible. We're certainly keeping up to date with it and, and trying to find someone that would voluntarily, you know, trade carbon. So that still is an opportunity, a possibility. Mm. Um, and we are pursuing that so slowly, but you know that really relies on a company just wanting to do it for out of the goodness of their heart. But most of the carbon trading that's happening at the moment, I think, is big companies who realise that trading carbon is, is not very far away and they are shoring up their carbon resources before it becomes expensive to do that. Mm. So, you know, they can see the writing on the wall. They're going to have to, you know, get this carbon and the price of carbon is only going to go up. So I think they're the ones that are driving, well, they are the ones that are driving this expansion into the Southern Rangelands at the moment uh, and probably all over the place, essentially before 
uh, word really gets out that these properties are worth quite a lot more than they have been worth just for carbon. So, mm, indeed, no, we're we're seeing quite a bit getting bought up even on that basis, mm. not just trading yeah. links. Speaking of um, other shifts, we talked off air a little bit before about another mining advance that you've experienced. I was wondering, even on the level of renewables or, or hydrogen, the broader spectrum now of interest there is in mining through these regions, even for green, you know, nominally green, and you have had a little more interest. Where's that at at the moment? Uh, there's a company that's just really recently decided that they want to dig up some really high-grade hematite down the bottom end of the property which lots of companies have looked at over the years. Uh, this is a pretty small company, it's a pretty small mine. They're sort of talking about two years worth of uh, digging this, not very much of it, uh, hematite out. So, yeah, I don't know, they seem pretty keen. They always do seem pretty keen, but they've actually taken out a mining <laughs> tenement, which has never happened before. We've had lots of exploration, but these guys have actually taken out a mining tenement. So it's sort of that made us wake up a bit. But anyway, we'll see. We'll see how that goes. What's that used for? Hematite. Yeah. But that's iron ore. So that's the good iron ore. Right. Okay. It's about seventy percent iron. Oh wow! And this was you had as just a um, unofficial visit from someone in mines as well, where you did talk about what you talked about in your book as well, and we talked about last time on the podcast your idea about essentially the uh, the nonsense that is mine rehabilitation, and your idea to mm. harness the funds that nominally go into that to actually regenerate landscapes vastly bigger. I guess it's going to be interesting. Perhaps this will be a case in point, if it comes to be, where you become a little microcosm of trying that out. Yeah, well, we certainly hope so. Yeah, I mean, the problem has been, especially with exploration, and the exploration miners, they go in and they, they build roads and drill pads and all sorts of things, and then they're supposed to rehabilitate that afterwards, but... Quite often they make no attempt to do that, uh, which is what's happened on Moline. And even when they do make an attempt, it very rarely does anything at all. So, yeah, we've actually got a tentative agreement with this company already to supply some rock to us, to a particular location, so that we can um, use that rock to slow down a degraded waterway which has become in size. So essentially put the rocks in, make some rock bars in it and uh, try and rehydrate the floodplains. A bit like we do with the, with the Envira rolls, I guess, but but much more substantial. So uh, we've already got a tentative agreement for them to, to, to provide that rock, which is something that would be very expensive for us to... Uh, you know, source in another way. So yeah. I, I'd be really happy if that project comes off that while, you know, there had been damage done to the landscape, the, uh, you know, the positive benefits to the landscape, admittedly in a different area, would be much greater. Yeah. So that's, uh, yeah, exactly what I was talking about in the book and it seems likely that if the mine goes ahead, it might happen. So pretty happy with that. Very interesting, mate. The other thing you've taken more action on is on the dingo front, I think there was another alliance of pastoralists and farmers that came together around that too, wasn't there, last year? And you were you're a bit of a figurehead for, you are in the press a bit for. Any further movement on that? I was just sort of ticking along. I mean, it was just a, a you know, Facebook site to uh, and, a, and a website to where people could discuss, you know, the positive aspects of dingoes because you see plenty of 
negative press for dingoes, always called wild dogs. Mm. But we uh, we we decided that you know to create a space where people could uh, talk about um, the more positive aspects, you know, and ideally not get shot down. Yeah, what was that called again? <laughs> uh, Francis, what's the dingo <laughs> thing called? What's that dingo Facebook thing called? Landholders for dingoes. Mm. That's right. Yeah, good. No, you've talked a lot about that uh, language use around that too. Inaccurate, inappropriate language use with the term wild dog. And, mm. uh, and yeah, in a country with the worst mammalian extinction rate in the world, it remains a vital issue. And for all the other reasons you've advocated about. Going back to the book, of course, the other thing we spoke about the other day was uh, another sense that you had that the time had passed for potentially doing the audio book was because you felt like not only was it a different time, but it was a different bloke that wrote it almost, mm. that there's been a lot of water go under the bridge for you personally in the last while. What change is that? How would you? How have you come to th- reflect on how you feel different? Yeah, I mean, it's only, uh, only a couple of months in that, but um, I guess I kind of... Uh, you know, you have these ideas about things that you, you could do and ways that you could be and ways that you could be a better person, but you don't necessarily act on them. And I just I decided about two months ago to act on them. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, it just sort of really changed my outlook on a lot of things and, yeah, just sort of been really pushing ahead with that for the last couple of months, which has been... Fantastic! I've never felt better, and I've never I've never been fitter. Well, wow. I've never been happier. So I'm loving that at the moment. Yeah, and I think yeah, I think I'll definitely stick with it. Mm. <laughs> you know, um, even in the photo that we were talking about before with the minister, I was like, "Geez, look at you! Ah. You looked different. You weren't feeling your, your shorts looked big. Let's say that." <laughs> yeah. Well, I think last time we talked, I was. Uh, I don't know, I feel like I was a bit of, in a bit of a holding pattern. Mm. But I feel like, you know, I have I have sort of had this mindset before when I was sort of travelling overseas in my early 20s. And I do sort of mention that in the book as well. Yeah. But, uh, you know, really, it was a really, um, it was a time of life when I was really experimenting, I guess, with, with who I was and sort of adopted a bit of a philosophy for life and then I feel like sort of 15 years ago when I was taking over the place and taking over Lane and you know probably struggling or a lot you know struggling with depression a bit I sort of Mm. I slipped way out of that mindset and you know got into a bit of a hole having said that I still uh, recognized that I had a lot of agency and power to determine where my life went but yeah I guess I've really amped that up in the last couple of months and decided to do a lot of things that I guess I knew I could do but wasn't Mm. choosing to do I forgot what the question was (laughs) uh, (laughs) what was the catalyst a couple of months ago was there a trigger not really there was a whole bunch of things but nothing I don't think anything that was, you know, I, I used a bunch of things as a catalyst 
But I, I could have done that at any time. Mm. You know, a similar, a bunch of things which which had similar impact on me it happens all the time. It's just that I guess I chose those things to be the catalyst, and, and some of those are quite personal. <laughs> yeah. But nothing really out of the ordinary, certainly. You know, there's a couple of books that I read, a couple of, in fact, a couple of books I read ages ago that I really started to think about. But there's a whole heap of things. Like I, I couldn't, in mentioning some, I'll, I'll probably put a lot more emphasis on them than is really necessary. Yeah, sure. And I guess it had been building for a long time. You know, I, I kind of, I'd experienced it before, back in my, in my 20s when I was travelling, and, and I'd always thought it was much harder to get in that headspace when you're on a station where, where you know, you're, you're needed for certain jobs, things go wrong, you know, I used to lose, well, used to, before two months ago, I used to lose my temper all the time at all the things that were going wrong. Uh, it also didn't, you know, world events, you know, Donald Trump getting mm. in and Scott Morrison getting in again, you know, those sorts of things really yeah. dragged me down and I kind of felt like, those were almost insurmountable, you know, obstacles to get back to a really good headspace, but they, they weren't and they aren't. It's just that I wasn't choosing to, to make that leap, I guess. Ugh. And, uh, you know, a couple of months ago I was like, well, I'm 42. If I'm not going to uh, start acting on the things that I know that I should be doing now, well then, when I am, when am I going to? You know, am I going to do it when I'm fifty or sixty or eighty or just never at all? And I thought, well, really, the time is now. The time is always now. So I was like, that's it. I'm going to eat well. I'm going to go for a run each day. I didn't uh, consciously decide not to lose my temper anymore. <laughs> In fact, I didn't really consciously decide to do any of these things. But uh, I haven't lost my temper for two months, which is probably a record for me. No, it probably is definitely a record since I took over the property. Um, I'm really trying to, not trying, I am connecting with people much better. It's improved, you know, all, all the relationships that I have, especially with Francis, which is obviously massively important. Just, you know, trying to be a better person, I guess. Not trying, I am. Oh, it's amazing. It's a really powerful thing, obviously. And in so many ways, obviously, yeah, for you personally, you've just articulated. And I, but I think of how, I mean, how you related it then to how you um, interpret the outside world, you know, <laughs> the stuff that can be overwhelming, uh, how you hold that is completely different. It's so powerful in so many ways. And that actually it's a means of you getting more and better engaged with people than less like it's not that you sort of turn away further in your own peaceful bubble. Yeah, definitely. It's the other way. So it's huge. Mm. And I guess timely in a sense with the with everything we started this conversation with, with the alliance and so forth, it puts you in good stead to to connect and see where you know, a broader group of people trying to do this stuff can go. But Dave, I'm curious, going back to the origins in a sense, and pro probably many listeners would relate. I mean, it's that time of life in a way, isn't it, in your 20s when you open up to the world. But in your case, you were travelling, uh, as you wrote about in your book, and you hit a sort of a rock bottom. Take us back to where the nest was built, I suppose, in you that has now come to life. I mean, I guess, uh, I guess like 
a lot of, or maybe all of uh, these things, when you get to the point where you feel like you're really on the journey to being where you want to be, you look back and you think, well, actually, there was a lot leading up to that. Like I was, I was making the decision to get to that point long before I got there. So I guess, you know, so I'd made the decision to, to travel overseas and, you know, had a pretty good time, uh, well, maybe partying, um, which, you know, was a good time, no doubt. But there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of, you know, finding myself, I guess, mm. more about trying to find a bar yeah. um, anyway. But I guess I, I knew, or I didn't, I knew that that wasn't really what I was looking for. Like I was looking for mm. something a lot deeper. So, you know, the decision to go overseas was part of that. I broke up with my girlfriend not so sort of long before. And then, yeah, it was just a, in a hostel in, in, in London, a real dive of a place. And there was a guy and, the, you know, it's all bunk beds and a lot of people live in the, hospi- the, the hostels over in England because it's the cheapest place to live. And there was a guy across the bunk from me who I'd never met. And, uh, you know, I was sort of, I don't know, probably had a hangover and was sleeping on my bunk and he just threw a book at me. He said, you should read that. And I was like, oh, you know, nice to meet you, mate, sort of thing. And uh, <laughs> and he walked out the door. I didn't realise he was leaving. So I never saw him again. <laughs> yeah. But I did read the book and, uh, yeah, I think it really changed my outlook on life. So, yeah, the book was Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Which I recall myself in my own journey too, yeah. And and since then have sort of, I guess, got on to writers like Alan Watt and so forth that, that I think even Neil was drawing on, you know, the, that whole yeah, lineage right. of thinking, the philosophy that you referred to, yeah. Ah, who was that? I should read him. Alan Watt. He was sort of like the first Westerner who translated and interpreted the major Eastern works. Yeah, right. Which a lot of this stuff sprung out of. Yeah. So this was pivotal for you, eh? Absolutely, yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I really embraced some of the, well, maybe, well, there's really only one central tenement to it, but, um, uh, you know, really embraced that um, and but observed it. Like uh, when I was travelling, I sort of watched it in action and experimented with it a bit and decided that I thought that it was the truth. Mm. So that was really, that was really fantastic, and I feel like I was a different person after that. But really, it's been it's been a process of observation ever since, and eventually that observation turned into, you know, I have the power, but I don't know. But there's no point in using it. I don't know why. Now that I and now now I, you know, a couple of months ago I've decided. Well, if this is what I'm basing my life's philosophy on, well, then I should actually. I should actually use it rather than just observe the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I feel like I've just sort of been a bit of a bit of a passenger um, more than anything. Though I did, I did, you know, it's 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 essentially about your ability to create your own reality. Well, my interpretation of it. Yeah. So for the last, you know, twenty years, it's been, you know, I have this ability, um, but what's the point of using it? Because I can just. Oh, I should have thought about this more before I, before I started talking about it. But uh, I think that I have the ability to create my own reality 
but I guess I thought, well, why use it? Because, you know, then I'm just taking control. Yeah, and, yeah, it's, it's hard to explain. Yeah, no, I hear you. But to the taking control, the taking control is the whole point of knowing. Well, no, well, it is now. I mean, the point of knowing is is whatever you choose it to be. But uh, a couple of months ago, I decided that, you know, the point of knowing that I create my own reality is to actually create my own reality. So, yeah. so for the last couple of months, I've been going, well, if that's if that's how the universe works, then I'll start creating then. Mm. And I feel a lot better for it. It's so interesting, isn't it, that that is true? I mean, sure, there's going to be a physiological aspect to that when you just, yeah, go for your run every day or whatever it is and and, uh, sure. and your body starts to respond. But it's obviously draws from a deeper well. As I observe your journey and I think, well, it's interesting how you were still, you were doing it in the critical ways, like you you made the proposal for the station you took the lease, mm. you held firm on the vision through near bankruptcy and all sorts of health dramas. Like, you never let it go, it occurs to me. No. No, I didn't. And I always believed it. Yeah. I, I guess I feel like maybe I I probably should have thought about this more, but I guess I was using it externally but not internally, if that yeah. makes sense. So I was using it to interpret what was happening around me but I wasn't using it to fine-tune how I actually felt about things. So mm. nowadays, you know, I've, I've been in just, a, you know, a really good place for the last couple of months, you know, a really happy place. And, and, <laughs> and you sort of think, well, are you creating that or, you know, are you just convincing yourself that you're creating it? And the great thing is that there's no <laughs> difference between those two things. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I'm just convincing myself that, uh, you know, everything's rosy or maybe I'm creating it so that it is rosy, but there's actually no difference in, in how I perceive those two different things. So, you know, essentially they're the same. So, yeah, now I, I and, I, and I, I've never really understood the phrase, I probably never really thought about it that much, you know, being in the moment. Mm. And now I do understand it and I do consciously choose to be in the moment and to decide in that moment what I want to be. And I think you can always do that. I think anyone can do that, even if they don't necessarily believe the same things that are, you know, the same philosophy. But you know, in, in any single moment, you can narrow down and think, well, this is how I feel and think, well, but how do I want to feel? And, and you know, even in the depths of despair, you can, you can feel happy for a moment. You know what I mean? mm. And I think that's that's the creative aspect of you. If you keep thinking about those individual moments and being happy, even if it is for those, even if it is for a moment, then you know that is the act of creation which I'm talking about, which is your right as something that exists. Mm. Yep, and it's just so wedded to when we talk about regeneration of the broader landscape and you've just articulated so well how i mean essentially that's where you were applying it and and you connected it through to your personal being again now in a full way yeah it's that's profound stuff in many ways i think that is the mindset that again we often talk about i guess it's recovering what we lost through the western enlightenment 
you know, plenty to gain, obviously, but what we lost, and arguably through the Renaissance prior to that, and arguably through religion prior to that, Western religion, is the separation of ourselves from that. We were separate from God and separate from land. Mm. So in many ways, it's arguably at the heart of the mindset and way of being shifts that we probably ultimately do need to take on. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, there's a lot of different ways. <laughs> there's a lot of different ways of doing it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And I guess, uh, what am I trying to say? You know, each way of doing it is, each way of doing anything is just as valid <laughs> as every other way of doing it. It's just as powerful. Like every, every everybody, not everybody, everything, I believe, mm. has the same amount of power to create its own reality and you can look at different people or different things and think well that's not doing a very good job of it uh, <laughs> or that is doing a very good job of it but really that's uh th- those things are only a re- or those people or whatever they're only a reflection of yourself because you're the one that's interpreting it it's your reality you mm-hmm. can only see you can only see how your reality works you don't know what their reality of it is so and I think that that's it's easy to it's easy to look at something and go well that's not something I understand or that's that person is doesn't look anything like me and and that that don't they don't hold my values but I, I kind of feel like I believe that that is simply an aspect of yourself like you say well that person's doing the wrong thing over there well what you're looking at is not something other what you're looking at is an aspect of yourself yeah. You know, then you need to, uh, or not need to, but you can, if you want, choose to interpret that um, in a way that is, you know, helpful for you in what you want to achieve or not. And, and I think a lot of the time we, you know, we use those external prompts to say, well, this is the reason why this can't be or why that can't be. But that's just you telling yourself that it can't be. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. You grew up to a large extent with the First Nations mob at your place. And when I hear you speak about that, I, I feel a convergence with underpinning of their knowledge systems. Do you feel that too? I do. Not so much for this. I don't really. I was thinking about this the other day. I don't really have oh, – that's not true. I can draw some parallels. But I don't, I don't really have a good understanding of the – I don't think I know the word – of the deep philosophical reasoning behind Aboriginal culture. I've certainly seen it. Um, I've, ex- I've experienced um, how that manifests in, in the Aboriginal people that I spend a lot of time with, but I guess I don't necessarily, and now that I think about it, I mean, I don't really have a, a deep understanding of the of the philosophy of anyone, <laughs> uh, so maybe I, <laughs> maybe I should just choose. I think generally, overarching sort of religions or you know ways of thinking that lots of people adhere to. Well, first of all, it's my own construction of how I think they think, and secondly, like that that is that is, that is simply a, once again an aspect of myself that I'm observing. There is nothing that's external. Hmm. But 
maybe answering your question a little bit more specifically in the way you meant it. <laughs> we've, we've certainly uh, certainly drawn from Aboriginal culture. First of all, it, well, it started certainly with uh, with observation. Yeah, just simple observation, but for an appropriate length of time, and that's sort of turned into, in terms of landscape management, has turned into understanding. So that's been really crucial in in my development of you know how I manage the land, but yeah, taking that time to really observe and generally with very little judgment, you know that's definitely that's a good start for anything really. Yeah, right on. Oh, David, it's uh, absolutely magnificent as our conversations have grown over the years too that it's opened up into this. Uh, just brilliant. I've loved speaking with you today. Thanks a lot. And of course, we finished with music. So I'm really interested. In it. Like there was a book that we could trace back some of this stuff to when you're a younger bloke. Was there music around that time too that was stoking the fire? I don't think so. No, no. It, the music, uh, I mean, there was, I think the Macarena was playing in clubs at the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think uh, it was. When you say that, what comes to mind is uh, is the sounds of wherever I was. I found all of those sounds of of whatever you know of the of the natural world, but but probably more so of uh, of the of the built environment. I guess it's uh, was it mindfulness. You know, it, it's it's really narrowing down on those sort of sounds and going, wow, you know, that's I've never really contemplated just normal you know happenings in a in a on a, on a city street. So at that time, there was a lot of moving very slowly through the city landscape, it was, and looking at it with completely different eyes and ears, I guess. Mm. So no, to answer your question. <laughs> no, that's a big yes, mate. I'll take that. <laughs> Wonderful, mate. Thanks a lot. No worries. And thank you. Thank you once again for uh, providing this avenue of connection with people i decided a lot you know back then that the best thing that you could do was help people and then when i came back i decided i wasn't actually very good at helping people <laughs> what i would do is help people help themselves by trying to fix the landscape mm. but i'm back to helping people and you do a really good job of that you're really good at helping people so uh, i reckon that's the best thing that you can do mate, i really appreciate that Every, that everyone can do not just you yeah right on <laughs> I'm absolutely uh, pumped to hear what you've taken by the horns. Me too. Yeah, and uh, look forward to seeing in the flesh at some point before too long, hey, and, and hearing how all this keeps evolving. Yeah, hopefully I don't revert. But no, I'm not going to do that for a <laughs> That was David Pollock, regenerative pastoralist and author of The Woolene Way. For more on David, Woolene Station, the book, and the Southern Rangelands Revitalisation Pilot, See the links in our program details. You'll also find the links to my previous conversations with David and Francis for the podcast. And thanks as always to the generous supporters who've helped make this episode possible. Please consider joining them so I can keep this independent media going. Just head to the website via the show notes, regeneration.com forward slash support. The music you're hearing is Regeneration by Amelia Barden off the soundtrack to the upcoming film Regenerating Australia. Tune in to episode 108 with Damon Gamow to hear more on that. 
My name's Anthony James. Thanks for listening. <laughs>